You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. We come now back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Uh, now we find ourselves, after having moved through the primeval history of chapters 1 through 11, uh, then having traced our way through the life of Abraham, chapters 12 through most of chapter 25. Uh, we come now to the latter half of chapter 25 with the story of and life of Isaac and Jacob, which will take us all the way through chapter 35 of the book of Genesis. Following that, we see the life of Joseph, which leads us uh, to the end. And so we're coming now this evening to look at verses 19 through 34, where we have another one of these common phrases, a, a really a, a chapter marker, if you will, in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. Uh, this formula is a way in which it seems that the book of Genesis is organized for us. And so we now come to one of these major sections once more. So here are these words starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When the days when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we come to the beginning of the story of the life of Isaac, which is, really ends up being more focused on Jacob. And we'll look at Jacob's life primarily through chapters 25 through 35, but really from uh, chapters 25 to the end of Genesis, Jacob plays a leading role 
And actually, Jacob's death is recorded for us at the end of Genesis. And as we come to look at the life of Jacob, we see uh, his father, Isaac, whom we've seen already, the long-promised son of Abraham. And as we come to see in Isaac this evening, we'll see similarities in Isaac's life, but also differences, ways in which Isaac is different from Abraham. But it does seem that the writer, it does seem that Moses is very intent for us to see parallels uh, in their lives. So this evening, we're simply going to look at uh, the story of Isaac, verses 19 through 23, the birth of his sons, 24 through 25, and then we end with this story about uh, their character, verses 29 through 34. So we start with the story of Isaac. Uh, from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50, there are three major sections and two minor ones that all start with these are the generations of. The first one, obviously, is Abraham. But then the second one is Ishmael. Uh, in verse 12 of chapter 25, these are the generations of Ishmael. It's a very small section. And then suddenly we move on to these are the generations of Isaac. And then this long extended section to chapter 35. And then we're given these are the generations of Esau. And then we move on to these are the generations of Jacob after that. And so we can see the way in which the book is structured uh, to follow the, the line of the seed. It doesn't neglect these other side stories of Ishmael and Esau. They're important to the story. But the, the main focus uh, is clearly on following the line from Abraham to his promised son, to his son, Jacob. And a lot actually is made of Esau and Jacob later on in the scriptures, which is fascinating. And it almost seems like it has to be, something has to be made from it because for Abraham, the one son that was born to him was Isaac. And we knew that from Isaac, Isaac was this promised son. But suddenly Isaac, his wife gives birth to twins. And what would happen now to the people of God? Which one would the line continue on through? And so we begin in verse 19 with these are the generations of Isaac. And it does seem that there is a, a clear contrast with these are the generations of Ishmael. Moses puts in here that he was Abraham's son, just as Isaac is Abraham's son. But he adds in the generation of Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Here in the one of Isaac, he simply refers to him as Abraham's son, and obviously we're to assume and remember what has come before it, that he is also the son of Sarah. And then in verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Uh, we come to this, and again, coming back to what we've previously talked about, uh, really the story of Isaac has been one of God's grace, of God's protection, and God's care through uh, many ways in which Abraham sought to work things out on his own and put the seed in danger God protected and preserved. But then when Isaac was born and grown, uh, great care was taken to make sure that he took a wife from a godly line and not from uh, the surrounding Canaanites, the surrounding pagans. And that story wonderfully shows God's, again, grace and protection of the seed. 
And we'll see later in the life of Esau the the problems that come from marrying uh, outside, if you will, of the the covenant uh, community. Though it's a later construct really to get into that. But nonetheless, you you see in the life of Esau when he takes on pagan women, uh, it causes great trouble for his family and eventually leads others down the pages of scripture into idolatry. As well, And so already as we're coming here, we are being reminded of what God has done already. And then there's this forecasting or looking forward to what God will be doing in Isaac's life. And in verse 21, we get one of these uh, allusions, if you will, to the life of Abraham. One of these similarities where Isaac seems to be, if you will, a chip off the old block. He seems to have a life that has a lot of similarities to his father. And one of those is that the wife that he marries is barren. So just as Sarah was barren, so Rebekah is barren. We're not really told why, but simply the fact of the matter is that she is barren. But I think the the difference we're already starting to see in the life of Isaac is the way in which he handles the situation. Because you'll remember back to uh, the life of Abraham... He was told he would have sons and this great multitude would come from him. And so Abraham and Sarah eventually concoct plans to help along this process. If it wasn't going to come through Sarah, then maybe it would come through Hagar instead. And then there was a right mess made after that. But notice what Isaac does and Rebekah does. Instead of resorting to concubinage and trying to force this To happen because, again, in this culture, children are incredibly not only necessary, but they're just seen as this great blessing as they are today, a blessing from the Lord. But also, it's a a ways in which to continue this line. If Isaac is so important, surely Isaac's son is also important. And we see here, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. You have this great contrast here. Isaac prays. It says praise for his wife. It could also be praise before his wife. That he's there with Rebecca and he's praying and interceding for her. And then this just wonderful words here. And the Lord granted his prayer when Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now when you first read that, it can kind of seem as if it was a uh, a very simple prayer that was prayed, and then there's this immediate answer to it. But if you look in the context here, it'll tell us later that when Isaac and Rebekah were married, Isaac was 40 years old. When the children were born, Isaac is 60. So there's a 20-year gap between this. And I think what we're likely to see here is that this is probably not just a, a one-time prayer. This is not you know, Isaac, after 19 years of not having children, going, maybe I should pray now. But it's likely meant to be that this is what Isaac was doing. He was praying and persevering in prayer for 20 years. And he was trusting in the Lord to bring about a child. They could have found easier ways. I mean, he had the example of his father. Maybe he had the example of his father and knew better. (laughs) But either way, he prays and the Lord answers. But then 
we get this uh, complexity added to the situation. So the Lord grants this prayer. Rebecca conceives, and in verse 22, we're told now that the children, so not the child is struggling, we're told that the children are struggling within her. I remember when Laura was pregnant with Fox, uh, he was upside down. He was a breech baby. He shouldn't mind me telling this. But remember, we were being told stories about what would happen when the baby turned and just how strange it is to see the baby turn inside the womb. Um, that didn't happen uh, for us, but that's okay. We've gotten over it by now. But the, thing, the, the fact of the matter is it's a very almost disturbing thing to see this whole baby turn inside the womb. And I, I say that as an illustration here to say that what Rebecca is, is feeling at this moment is that there's not just a, a struggle inside. There seems to be a, almost a open warfare happening inside her womb. The children are struggling within her. And the Hebrew is a little terse here, but it, it seems as if she's really uh, incredibly worried about this. If, this. if it is thus, why is this happening to me? It seems as if what she's really saying is, is she's, she's genuinely worried and genuinely concerned about this pregnancy and even her own life. And so she's incredibly concerned, and certainly any woman who was pregnant who had two babies fighting inside the womb would be deeply concerned. But again, as we come to Isaac and to Rebecca, we just note what she does in the midst of this. Because again, back in that day, it was certainly uh, not unexpected for a woman to perish in childbirth. And so she is very worried. And it says here, so she went to inquire of the Lord. What did she do in the midst of not understanding, in the midst of this incredibly difficult situation? Well, she goes and she prays. She seems to follow the example of her husband. So she prays and the Lord answers her again. So we have this response from God already. We have the response of opening up Rebecca's womb after Isaac's prayer and now Rebecca praying to the Lord what is going on here. And the Lord gives her this uh, actually very great prophecy about what's going to happen. Two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other but the older shall serve the younger. So it seems to start giving her at least some understanding of what is happening inside her womb. But also this prophecy about the, the children who will come from that and really what will happen throughout their life. That there's this conflict that it speaks of that's happening right now that looks to continue. And so she gives birth, and behold, it is twins. Up to this point, we just had sort of a, an unknown number of children. And here the text tells us twins are born, which seems to certainly fit the prophecy of two nations. The first one born comes out in all red or ruddy in complexion and has hair upon him, this hairy cloak. And so they call him Esau. Uh, it seems as if there's not really much of a reason for the name Esau. There's no wordplay that can really be seen in his name. It seems simply that was the name that was given. But then as he is coming out, there on his heel is Jacob holding on to Esau as he is being born. 
one commentator said it, it seems as if the conflict that started in the womb is continuing even now after the birth as a sign that it is going to continue throughout their lives. And so this second son, the one born just seconds later, is called Jacob. And Jacob's name uh, is a reference to the heel. So it's he who grabs the heel. Uh, It's the meaning of his name. And then you'll note Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth. So 20 years of, of waiting and praying now finally fulfilled in these two sons that were born now to Rachel, uh, sorry, to Rebecca and Isaac. And as we'll see in a moment, as we'll come to see the, the character and the nature of these two children born to Isaac, it's interesting to sort of move further down the line in the book of Romans to see that Paul brings out Jacob and Esau in chapters 9 through 11 and really uses them to illustrate the ways in which God works and is working out his plan in the world. Because as we know, the, the line that will be the one that will continue and will be the line in which Jesus will come from will be the line of Jacob and not through the line of Esau. And what we'll see and we see the life of Jacob is that he's not the most righteous of men. He is a sinner. And yet God works through him. And Paul brings out this incredible point to say that this was the plan that God had before these two children were even born. He also cites not only this prophecy, but also from Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And Paul here is just drawing on uh, several points. Uh, There's many more that Paul is trying to bring out, but He's simply drawing out what we see here in the text and what we'll see as we continue through this text this evening is that, first off, God is simply in control. That is certainly one of Paul's points in the book of Romans is that with Jacob and Esau and the way in which the line continues through Jacob and not Esau is simply that that is what God ordained. He decided that that's what it would be, and so it was. And so God is in control, God has a plan, and then God is executing that plan through specific people. And then one of the second, or the second point that Paul seems to be drawing out is God's sovereign election. He'll eventually move from the story of Jacob and Esau to Gentiles being brought into the covenant community and a hardening that comes upon some of the Israelites. And Paul there just simply says, God will have mercy. On whom he will. He'll have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy upon. He he is in control. He is sovereign. He has a plan and he will accomplish that plan. And as we look through Genesis chapter 25 and really the rest of the story of Jacob and Esau, we simply see that God is in control. He is the one who has opened Rebekah's womb. He is the one who has given her the prophecy about what will happen to her children as they grow up. And again, the reason he can tell her about the future is because he's the one who's planning it. It's just interesting also just to note the way in which Paul is preaching a sermon about the present day by going back to and showing how it worked out in Jacob and Esau's life. 
And so we have these two children who are born, Jacob and Esau. Esau, the older one, and Jacob, the younger, by a, a few seconds. In verses 27 through 28, we are now given some characteristics of these two children that will be really helping us to see who they are as they grow up. So when the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And so we have already a contrast. Though they're twins and they're separated by mere seconds in the birth order, they seem to be very and almost completely different people. Esau is this ruddy, hairy man who lives out in the fields and hunts game. Whereas Jacob, the ESV uses the word a quiet man dwelling in tents. It seems as if the, the picture there is uncivilized and civilized. Jacob, who lives in a tent, later he'll see uh, him cooking. And where Esau seems to dwell in the fields under the stars. He seems to be a man who is somewhat wild looking in appearance and wild and animal-like in his attitude. Whereas Jacob is a, a quiet man. The, the word can also mean even-tempered or civilized. And so it's likely there that the writer, that Moses is just trying to begin to, to contrast, I think, someone who is uncivilized versus someone who is civilized or, or even-tempered. You know, Esau sleeps outdoors, Jacob sleeps in a tent. And then we're told about the parents and the way they look at the children. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we have this strange, strange picture of Isaac. He's a man of prayer, but also he seems to be a passive man who just enjoys his food. I think one commentator called him a gourmand, which I thought was quite funny. And we'll see later how this love of food will work against both Esau and Isaac. And then we see Rebecca loves Jacob, but we're not told why. But it'll be Rebecca who will hatch this plan later for this blessing to be placed upon Jacob over Esau. And she'll be the one who uses her husband's love of food against him. And so we start to see some of the characteristics of these two. And then in verses 29 through 34, we get this little vignette, this little story that seems to illustrate the way in which these two men think, but also setting the stage for what is a, really is a, is a great reversal and really confirming that prophecy. So the stage is set in verse 29 that once upon a time, as you where Jacob is cooking a stew. As far as exciting stories go, that's not the greatest of introductions, I think. But something is about to, to happen here in this story. Esau comes in, he's exhausted, and he's starving. So the, the hunter had been out hunting, out uh, in the wild lands, and he comes back, and he has no food. He has caught nothing. He seems to have just made no provision should he have failed. Whereas Jacob seems to have things ready, he has prepared them. He has a stew already on the pot, on the fire. Jacob looks to be the one who is civilized. And there's also a possibility that there's a play on words that's happening in the Hebrew between Esau the hunter and Jacob who is cooking. The, the word cooking in Hebrew is the word zid, and the word for hunter is tzayid. So zid tzayid. 
I realize it doesn't sound like much saying it up front here, but it is, and many commentators have noted that there seems to be a wordplay that's happening here. And I think that even without that, we can see that there is a, a, a trap being set. There's a reversal of who these men are. Jacob is the one who hunts. He goes out in search of prey, potentially setting traps in order to entrap animals. He's the one who's trying to outsmart the wild beasts. But then what happens here? The situation is reversed, right? The hunter is now the hunted. Esau, the great and burly hunter, is now a defenseless animal. He is prey who is walking into a trap. He's like a wild animal in search of food, completely unaware of the danger. And so Esau comes in, he smells the stew that is cooking, he is famished, and he says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And then in parentheses, the, the narrator tells us, therefore his name was called Edom. Now there is a play on words there, Edom means red, there's a red stew. Esau was born in this red, ruddy complexion. And so uh, Esau desires this food, he is exhausted, and he does seem to be, at least here in the text, he seems to be someone who is just in, in acting by instincts alone. He's just simply hungry. He wants to satisfy his present needs first. And so Jacob, who seems to have set this trap, begins to spring it on Esau. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now or sell me your firstborn rights. And here he's asking for likely the, the larger portion of the inheritance. And it does seem that in the uh, ancient Near East that this uh, uh, ability to sell your birthright uh, was actually something that, while not common, was something you could do. So here Jacob, while yes, he's certainly setting a trap for his brother, uh, this was something that was, there was some social acceptability for it. Esau in many ways should have been aware of this trap. Esau should have just simply said no. Instead, Esau responds, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? It's likely here again, Esau is overreacting. I mean, anyone who's seen a small child who is hungry, they do tend to look like they might die at any moment. And here Esau is, is seeming to just almost like throwing a tantrum. I'm about to die. What does it matter for my birthright. What use am I going to get out of any of this inheritance if I'm dead, Jacob? Just please give me the stew. And finally, in verse 33, the, the trap in all of its uh, intricacies now has completely snapped upon Esau. Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gives him bread and lentil stew. And we just simply note that Esau eats drinks, rose, and went his way. He seems to be satisfied. He has made this deal. He is now fulfilled, and he just leaves. And it's interesting, as you think about the story, it does seem as, as if Jacob, again, has, has been deceptive. He has set this trap. He's cooked this stew, and his hungry brother there at, a, at this moment has seemingly taken advantage of him. But you'll note that the commentator, sorry, the, the narrator, that, that Moses here doesn't single out Jacob. 
as the one who did something wrong. That's not to say what Jacob did was ethical and right and that you should trick family members over dinner time. But simply, it's what Esau did was of a, a greater magnitude, of a greater spiritual significance than what Jacob did. You'll note here at the end, thus Esau despised his birthright. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I mean, Esau just seems to stand in complete contrast to this godly line. Esau seems to be really the the man of the world. Esau wants to satisfy the immediacy of what he's feeling right here and now without worry over much greater and more spiritual things. Because actually, if you read through this section, 25 to 35, there isn't a time where Isaac actually gives Jacob all of this property. And you can start to think for a moment, well, did he actually get the firstborn rights? And as you you move into the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 16 through 17, it speaks about the ways in which Esau has traded this birthright, traded this blessing, and even with tears was, was unable to change the situation. And the book of Hebrews is, is certainly concerned about something greater than just a bunch of sheep and goats and what have you, as, as important as they would have been uh, to the people then. It's, it's more concerned or less concerned with the, the material impact, but the greater spiritual or spiritual reality behind it. And you'll see that when there's this blessing finally given, uh, even though Jacob is tricking his father while he does it. But this great blessing, there's something in this blessing that when Isaac gives it to Jacob, it really determines the whole course of his life from then on out. And Esau here is, is pictured as despising these spiritual blessings in favor of material comfort in the here and now. And the writer to the Hebrews is is picking up on this and trying to help uh, those uh, Hebrew Christians who are struggling in their present time with with all sorts of of attacks coming from the out of these persecutions and this desire to go back to Judaism in order that they may really save their, their skin and save themselves the hassle and the trouble and the heartache and the pain and the suffering. And the writer of Hebrews seems to bring out this part of the story to remind them of what the present reality versus the future yet to come. And that really for the the Hebrew Christians at this time facing intense persecution, he's, he's really trying to put it to them. Look at Esau. Look at Esau. He traded really what seems to be eternal life for some stew. And if you think about this trade, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, even as good as this lentil stew may have been, he was going to be hungry again. And yet he traded this great blessing, this great birthright. These, all these spiritual blessings were traded. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that once this was done, it couldn't be reversed Even though Esau is tearful trying to get a blessing from his father, it cannot be done. 
We'll get to that section, or we'll look at that more clearly when we get there. But I think above all, what we're seeing here is that simply salvation and holiness and this great spiritual reality are something that Jacob, for all his faults, takes seriously. And something which Esau does not. For Esau, this spiritual blessing had no material benefit for him. What's he going to do with this spiritual blessing when he's hungry in the here and now? And so as we we come to the beginning of this new sermon series, several things I think that can help and guide us through the rest of these passages. And certainly Genesis is simply about God's plan, the beginning of his plan in history. Genesis tells us that God formed the world and he did it for a purpose and for a reason. And then when humanity falls, he calls Abraham in order to make this new line and gives this great promise and blessing of Isaac. And then we see that through Isaac's life that this line continues now through Jacob and the the sovereign election of Jacob over Esau. And we see all through now the rest of Genesis will not only show us God's plan, but God's people. That Isaac... And Rebekah are part of this godly line. Then Jacob and his wives are the ones who are chosen by God to continue it. But all throughout Genesis, it's not because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on are more righteous than their counterparts. It is simply that God has set his electing purpose and his love upon them, which is what fuels Paul's theology in the New Testament. When he looks at the old, before either of them had done good or bad, before they were born, God decided to continue his plan through Jacob. But yet we also see in this section that it isn't that humanity sits back passively waiting for God to move, right? Isaac prays, Rebecca prays. For better or worse, Jacob schemes, Rebecca schemes. They're active in their work. I think finally we come and see God's salvation. This birthright is is something greater than the material blessings from his father. There's There's a blessing and they do seem to be tied to salvation and to the history of salvation throughout the rest of the Bible. That from Isaac, two lines now are going to diverge out. There's going to be the son of blessing and the son of cursing. That these two lines now split. There's a nation of blessing and a nation of cursing. But fascinatingly, when you get to Romans 9, Paul seems to take those two lines that have been, we've seen throughout the the, the pages of scripture and sort of muddles them up now. All of a sudden, there's those who are Gentiles and outside the people of God who are now being brought into the people of God. That God is now creating a a new family through Jesus Christ, the, the son of Jacob. And now those like Esau are being brought in to his family. This wonderful picture through the gospel of Luke, through the book of Acts. 
that in Jesus Christ, this greater family, he's the true son of Israel. And that God is now restoring not just his people, but the entirety of the world. I think finally and lastly, we just simply see that what God starts, he finishes. He started with Abraham. Abraham passed away. Now it's Isaac. God is still working. Isaac will pass away. God will continue through Jacob, through Joseph, through Moses, through through Joshua, and so on and so forth until we get to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's still working today. And so we can take hope from this, that the, that the God of the universe is in control. He has his people, and he's bringing salvation and blessing, isn't he? Well, let us take hope this evening, and let us close in prayer. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S, dot co, dot U-K.